until you're giving him that, there'll be no peace. The brother's gonna work it out. Sci-fi movies make blockbuster hits, but how much are they sci and how much are they fi? Find out on this episode of Boiling Point. Welcome back to Boiling Point, your favorite weekly science radio show here on Eastside 89.7 FM. Happy Halloween, everybody. I know it's not super big of a holiday here in Australia, but you have your two hosts here who are from America. Um, and in the studio, we do not have a guest. So it is just us two Boiling Point producers. My name is Sammy. And my name's Liz. And we're actually both PhD candidates at UNSW who have experience working in museum collections and are actually both huge sci-fi movie fans, right? For sure. Yeah. So um, I thought we would get a little bit into some sci-fi horror movie sort of discussions. I think we can make, see how much how much reality is there in them? Because I think that's one of the things scientists always have an issue with when watching sci-fi movies. Whenever it's your expertise, like I know um, some computer science people that if you sit down and watch like CSI or something where they have to hack into a computer, they're like, that's not how that works. (laughs) So we're going to do a that's not how that works with sci-fi movies today and um, in our fields, which are um, biology, ecology, animal behavior kind of things yeah so uh let's start off with maybe what's your what's your favorite sci-fi movie currently Ooh, favorite sci-fi uh well probably i'd say my like favorite sci-fi stuff would have to be star trek because like generally a chunk of the movies are very good um Mm. especially when you start doing like start watching like first contact is really good wrath of khan is a classic Mm -hmm. um but those are some fun sci-fi uh but then kind of other sci-fi that i've actually been getting to lately would have to be like the matrix i had actually never seen it before and so i was really yeah and i watched it uh with my boyfriend and that was super fun but also like interesting kind of the concept of like Mm. yeah yeah Yeah, i i think i'm also a huge star trek fan sorry to any star wars fans out there but uh, you have two trekkies in the studio today yes Um, live long and prosper live long and prosper and we i don't know i feel like i don't really have a specific sci-fi film i more have a specific genre of sci-fi that i find really interesting yeah and maybe it's because I study things like climate change, but I really love those like apocalyptic, oh the dystopian, yeah those dystopian um, sort of sci-fi movies. But um, yeah, I think we can all. You don't need to be a scientist, I think, to to realize that a lot of those dystopian, giant tidal wave like like breaking the entire universe um, is not very realistic. But True. I feel like there are some sci-fi movies that are actually fairly realistic some of them are and the one that comes to mind immediately for me is um the film i recently rewatched it unfortunately called contagion i don't know if you've seen this no i haven't okay so basically 
um, you've lived it. You don't need to see it. Oh, fine. <laughs> it's basically I, a so. worldwide pandemic. Huh? Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, as a movie. And um, if throughout the whole movie, you don't know exactly how this sort of cropped up. It's just a lot of people getting sick and nobody knows why, nobody Ooh. knows how. Um, and them trying to figure out and trace it down to the origins that they can develop a vaccine or a cure or whatever they need to. So interesting. It was a really interesting movie to watch post-COVID. Oh, yeah. Because um, I had seen it before COVID and, you know, been like, oh, my gosh, what a terrible thing. Like, what this is so nightmarish scenario. We'll never survive this. And then huh. we actually have. Yeah. Um, but, you know, th it's actually got a lot of shocking resemblance to what happened during the pandemic. And um, it's got a lot of resemblance to, I think, um, how people work to develop vaccines and how people work to trace uh different viruses down to their source um and i don't know i think i thought the whole the whole movie was very well done so uh maybe have a watch of it for yourself and see if you agree with me whether or not you think it's somewhat realistic based on your personal experience during covid will do but yeah really great movie okay um another really big i think genre of sci-fi movies that people always wonder how like is this even possible, possible. oh yeah. yeah would be those um like zombie movies and kind oh, of going yeah. off of contagion we have the like world war z type oh, of yeah. zombie where it's some kind of infection and yep. then we have those classic just you know really out there eating brains, brains kind radioactive of, shenanigans yeah. ones yeah yeah those really out there ones and we actually do have some evidence for not so much the, the more out there ones, but yeah. sort of like a viral infection Fiction. affecting someone's behavior. That is true. Not yet in humans, I don't think, but I remember, I, I remember you brought up a couple of them, Liz. You mentioned a few. Do you want to sure. walk us through some of them? Sure. So in animals, zombification is not very unusual. Um, there are quite a few out there that exist. It's... Um, as I recall from a talk that I listened to, there was like, I think the person was saying that there are at least a few hundred that exist in the world, which is quite, in a way, quite terrifying. But some of the big ones that um, that I thought were some were the most interesting were there is uh, one that y'all might have seen if y'all have seen National Geographic, is there is a fungi that can control carpenter ants. And it's this fungi that uh, it ends up kind of the spores get onto the ant, the carpenter ant and it invades and kind of gets into its brain, ends up taking out a part of their brain and then basically controls them to then like march up a tall tree and kind of go onto a branch, bite down. Once they do that, then the fungi actually grows out of the back of their head, very creepy mushroom thing, and then sprays spores on all of the ants' brethren below. It's just this crazy oh. thing that, like, takes over their mind. And it, as far as uh, scientists know, it basically just, the fungi, like, eats a part or, like, destroys a part of their brain so they can then control the ant. Interesting. Yeah. And so then when this happens to the, the ant, did, did you get a sense of, like, how long? they can control it for or is it more just like immediate infection march up the nearest tree sort of scenario i'm just trying to like piece together if we're going off of like world war z theory yeah. there is so much that happens between first infection and then like it's spreading yes 
So for this one, I'm not actually very sure. As I understand it, it happens, I want to say it's a seasonal, like it'll happen at certain times of the year, and sometimes the spore will lay dormant for a bit. Mm. Um, Because I think it needs certain conditions for it to activate. And once it activates, it's then pretty quick that it like takes over its host and Mm. and goes. Okay. And so then when it's when it's with the inside of the brain of the ant, I'm assuming that that is where it is sourcing most of its nutrients. Then, yes, as we as scientists understand it, like it's they basically takes part of the brain and it basically uses that as a fuel source, kind of like latches onto it, and, mm, yeah. like a like a symbiote kind yeah, of. Yeah, yeah. So living that. living together with the host, and so these carpenter ants, they're like designed to be able to scale trees cut into wood yes. and then i guess this would essentially have them come full circle then and become the wood yes <laughs> indeed sort of in a weird way mm-hmm. oh that's interesting so i guess that's a very classic example of like zombie you know eating brains type thing yeah yeah and then like infecting other of its and kind just killing everything yeah okay so then it goes up the tree, right? And mm-hmm. then the spores will spread below. Yeah. Is that capitalizing? I'm not sure if... I don't know very much about terrestrial animals. Oh, good. Oh, good. <laughs> so is this them capitalizing off of the fact that ants sort of follow each other's scent trails? Do carpenter ants do that? Yes, they do. Okay. Um, they very much follow their scent trails. They'll have like a mound nearby. And so from their mound, they'll end up having different trees that they'll go up and stuff to get nutrients, food, supplies, whatever they need for their burrow. Mm. And so this kind of basically hijacks them from doing normal worker ant duties to like zombie ant duties and just never coming back. Interesting. Yeah. So then the other ones would probably smell that that trail yes. and follow, follow that trail. Mm-hmm. And then eventually when it does, what do you call it? Re- reproduce? reproduce? Yeah. yeah. Reproduce, reproduce spawn, and spore. spawn. All of the spores would go then onto all of the ants in this trail below them. Yes. Very clever for something that eats brains. Maybe that's, right. the, maybe that's the secret. Maybe we all have Ooh. to eat more brains. <laughs> <laughs> so so we, there's these, these carpenter ants. You said these are in the Amazon? Yes. Are there any other sort of examples of these types of animals or are there are they found other places they are so in the u.s actually there's another type of zombified animal um, and it's one that you might may may not have heard of um it's and it's basically a nematode or a worm that infects crickets mm. and what it does is it ends up as i recall it's a horseshoe worm and what it does is it ends up uh somehow the cricket will eat something that has like the horseshoe worm eggs it then gets in their stomach, and then that's basically perfect incubation for these worms. And then incubates, and eventually they hatch. When they hatch, what happens is that they end up kind of eating, or at least one of the worms will end up eating a bit of the brain of the cricket and get mass cricket exodus to water, where they then, like, the crickets will jump in the water, and then they basically explode, and the nematodes are everywhere. Oh. And so it's like the, it's quite a crazy process but they basically spawn in in ponds and puddles Mm. and so these it's a seasonal thing as well these guys only do it certain times of the year but okay yeah yeah i didn't hear about this back when i was living in the states so i don't know where specifically what type of environment this would be but kind of as i recall when i was doing some digging on this uh, a little bit illinois apparently had 
Okay. Like a, the national park was like, watch out, there are, mm. and just kind of be aware of. Okay, um, so like Midwest United yeah. States. Okay, yeah. interesting. Yeah, and you know, this is really like a very, I think it can be kind of scary to think about it too much, but mm-hmm. I don't think we have so many examples of zombification in that sort of sense in more complex animals not to say that ants and crickets are not complex complex, but yeah but like things like humans with more complex nervous systems we're not really seeing that many examples of this right that's true okay but i do think we do have a lot of examples of i hate to say that it's in that other more like rotting flesh kind of category of zombies but we do have a lot of types of diseases which are like rotting flesh diseases that is true that are in um like mammals mammals um there was a uh case a couple of cases i think last year where deer were having some unexplained like rotting flesh disease uh, wasting disease yeah, is that, kind is that of, what it was um i'm Maybe? not sure if they were calling it wasting disease or okay. not but it has that same effect um mm-hmm. wasting disease is something that we do see in sea stars so yes. um previously known as starfish mm-hmm. um sea stars had these this sort of sea star wasting disease yes. which was causing them to sort of uh lose their limbs and sort of get very gelatinous like they yeah. were slowly dying um, and then I also know, uh, being someone who studies corals, there's a lot of um, coral diseases that are very much like, not so much rotting flesh, but just dying tissue that yeah. is not really explained by any other type of, you know, disease or, or vac- bacteria that we know of. So lots of different examples of sort of that rotting flesh, dead creature kind of thing in real life so that is science but i'm not i've not seen many of those cases of these um the deer or the sea stars or the corals that are very keen to do anything yeah yeah they just kind of it basically just kills them slowly but surely yeah which is again terrible unfortunate but yeah um to put some minds at ease about the possibility of zombies we don't yet have uh, as far as I've seen, not a lot of evidence that that would be coming anytime soon. Yeah. So. Yeah. We got time. We got a little bit of time. But on the topic of sort of zombies and, and horror stuff, it's it's spooky season. Spooky, spooky. Talking a lot about, you know, we see lots of skeletons around. Oh, yeah. We also wanted to chat a little bit about what it's like working in museum collections. Yeah. Because, you know, we both have had to do... Um, some sample preparations, dealing with uh, animals that have been preserved. And there's a whole process that happens because of that. So, oh, yeah. Liz, why don't you tell us about what you do in museums? Sure. So for the past few, ooh, for the past like half of a year now, I was going back and forth between UNSW and uh, the Australian Museum. And I was working with the ichthyology curators, which awesome people. Um, Mm -hmm. and basically measuring a bunch of dead fish. Super fun. Yeah. Um, And very much with the collections, it's um, they're preserved. Normally they've been preserved before in formalin, um, and then they've been stuck in ethanol after they've been kind of fixed. Mm -hmm. And then when you take them out to work with, you wear gloves, and then you just you can mess with them like that. So fun smell. Ethanol is... (laughs) 
Oh my goodness. But but the formalin and formaldehyde is even worse. It's worse. So thank goodness oh, that yes. we've switched over to to 70% ethanol. It is so true. I actually did work with some uh specimens that were just in formalin and those can be very it's you one you have to do it under fume hood. There are concerns about um car- asphyxiation. Asphyxiation but yeah. also um uh carcinogens. Oh, it's carcinogenic. Like- Debates. There's okay. there are debates if it actually is or not, but in abundance of caution, mm. they generally recommend doing it under fume hood. Yeah. Um, I mean, as well, the fact that, you know, formalin has been really known to block the yes. airway of getting oxygen in the air that you need to breathe. breathe. So good, good practice. Just do it under fume hood. Wear a mask. Like, just be careful. Protect yeah. yourself. Um, but a lot of times with that, when I've worked with those specimens, they end up being kind of slimy and kind of like mm. weird and it's like, ugh, it's squishy. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. I would say my experience working in museums is uh, much less slimy. Nice. <laughs> so um, back when I was doing my honors in undergrad, I was, this was back in the States, and I was very lucky to be able to have a museum at my university. Nice. And uh, they had this really wonderful museum of vertebrates, which is, you know, everything that has a spinal Spine. cord. Yes. So we had everything from fish to birds. Oh, we had a huge bird collection, nice. um, which is very interesting to watch people prep them because they need Ooh. to preserve the feathers and the coloring in the feathers, which can oh. fade over time. So they have like very specific, you know, controlled temperature rooms. Yeah. They have very specific chemicals that they're using. So um, don't touch things that have like fur or hair on them because <laughs> it's a really weird process to sort of preserve those. Um, and I'm I'm not knowledgeable at all in terms of, you know, preserving the, the skin and hair of animals. But what I did specifically was preserving skeletons of things. Okay. So... Uh, my work specifically was looking at different fishes. So I would be basically the best sushi restaurant ever and yes. <laughs> fillet a whole bunch of fish down to their, like down to the skeleton or the spine. Nice. Um, take off as much tissue as we possibly could. Um, and then we put them actually into a box full of beetles. Oh, fun. Um, because these are special beetles. They're called dermestid beetles. And they... Oh, I've heard of those guys. They are really efficient at cleaning off flesh, but leaving bone um, intact. And wow. sort of the last pieces that go are like the tendons and ligaments, sort of that cartilage that sort yeah. of holds the skeleton together. So you have to pull it out at the right time. Otherwise, um, the pieces will come apart and then you can't put it back, back together, together again, again. Yeah. so very art in the timing of that but um yeah it was really great work to uh be able to add to this really amazing collection yeah. and then to be able to then i went and traveled to a couple of other museums in america and got to see their collections and basically use all of these different fishes that we wouldn't have been able to get otherwise fishes that people had brought from all over, over the, the world, world to go yeah. to the American Museum of Natural History and be preserved Very there. Cool. And it's just really amazing, actually. I feel like most people don't realize, as a general patron of a museum, you know, you just see the big displays of, like, oh, yeah. cool 
um, you know, cool skeleton, cool plastic thing, cool. Maybe maybe a dinosaur here or there. But like, there's actually so much behind the scenes. So much in the archives. Yeah, so much knowledge and also so much research that's being done yes so there's a ton of people that are employed at the uni- at the museum that do research using either the specimens that they have or maybe they're working to collect new specimens to answer new questions it's really interesting process where it's something that you don't even think about as a regular patron that there's so much new knowledge that's coming from this building that preserves old things <laughs> i don't know i always true. thought it was very very cool to think about when i was working in the museums behind the scenes so yeah i i think if anyone were to ever have the opportunity to work in a museum i think you'd be really really surprised at how dedicated and how like incredible the people that work there are yes um because they are so passionate about their work and they are so um so knowledgeable in a lot of really different things it's so true um it's one of those uh going over and measuring just the australian museum was amazing because like talking to the curators and stuff of the collection it was amazing and you have different volunteers that would come in and help with the collection whether it was like names of fishes change a lot and so like fixing that and making sure things are named properly identifying new species there's different people actually working on like identifying new species and stuff like that which is super cool mm-hmm. and um, just different questions in my project i could ask them about like different things about fish and they'd be like oh maybe i don't know that but this person definitely does and like then you start looking up about these people and you're like oh my gosh these people like do so many things in the field and they're in a way big names in the field so it was super cool like getting to getting to learn from them and share knowledge and stuff like that was amazing and people from around the world come to these collections because they realize like how much is there it's quite impressive and i was just dealing with ichthyology like they Mm -hmm. have so many other things the australian museum it was super cool yeah and it, it should be pointed out i think really briefly that the you know there are parts of museum collections that were not um i should say like we're not collected as ethically as we now yes. know that they should have been but it is good that we do have these abilities now of preserving yes. these things um and hopefully we can get the respects out to the correct people on who um has helped to preserve these memories and preserve these items for um, as long as they had until they wound up in the museum so thank you to um people who are very tied with their culture, tied with their environment, who have been helping the museums um, and have been helping the environment to preserve it for as long as they have. Um, and I would say also that uh, I wanted, I want to make this point really clear for a second, because I had a lot of people say this to me when I was working in the museums. They're like, yeah. that sounds really creepy. Mm. I don't think it is. No, I it's not. It like the If you think about it very broadly, right, it is sitting in a room full of things that are dead yeah but it's really it doesn't feel like that at it all it really doesn't um because it's it's so i don't know like they're preserved but not in a, in a creepy way, creepy way. and yeah. again we, we talked about like there's o- only so many examples of things of like zombification yeah you know so we're not there yet in terms of sci-fi of museum things coming to life, to life. night at the yeah, museum nah. does not exist. exist it is not yet <laughs> any type of reality that we can have um, and so it's really not as, I don't think it's as 
scary or weird as people have have tried to make me think that it is yeah yeah that's i agree like it's not as it's not as creepy as people think it is i think another point that might need to be touched on is that some people are like oh why are we going and collecting things to be put into museums Mm. um one of the questions that i kept getting because i actually also did some collecting out in bolivia for some of their stuff and working with the universities there that have museum collections Mm. it was like oh but like what if that's something that's super rare like why are you doing that and the response that we basically were told is that yeah it might be rare but part of the problem in Bolivia is that they only sort of know what they have. They don't even know everything about what they've got in the Amazon that's there. Mm. And so collecting it, even if it's, we try to only collect one, but like even that, like at least we have some record of it that existed. And so some of the species that some of the uh, other like museums have are ancient. Mm. I say ancient, but like, it's like at least 1800s or so. But and mm-hmm. so that's a really old specimen. Yeah, that species may not exist anymore, but at least we have some record of it, and so mm-hmm. that can kind of help piece piece gaps together. Especially like we we study evolution, and so like this can piece some of the gaps together of like how things have evolved and changed and stuff. Yeah. So I think it is important to, to collect, and that at least a little bit of it. That way we know what it is and be able to like learn and study from it. Yeah, and absolutely, and also our our collection methods. And our preservation methods have gotten much more efficient, I it's think, true. through time. And so now we have the ability to say, well, we have this one thing, let's pre- preserve it really well, and then we yes. don't need to collect any more of it. Exactly. Whereas I think, you know, 50, 100 years ago, our our preservation methods were a lot less good. And so we yeah. have sort of incomplete pieces from ancient uh, ancient quote unquote um yeah. our samples in museums and so we'll piece together with what we have from those older pieces but we can preserve and really efficiently um collect these really really amazing specimens and also yeah. i think there's a lot of also written um written collections and uh drawings yes. as well that are preserved in museums that just super were, cool yeah just also um people who had gone and done research in say the amazon in the 1800s their their notes end up getting preserved by museums as well so it's not yes. just animals and yeah. samples of things that were once alive you know we do have knowledge that's been preserved in other ways as well yeah. so yeah i think um the museums are doing really great work and I was very, very happy to be a part of that whole process. Um, and I guess we'll we'll sort of wrap up here with um, just one final one final topic. Yeah. What would you say is one piece of advice that you would give to someone during their next museum experience? like if they're if they're just going to a museum, what would you want for them to take away? Ooh, good question. I guess I can sort of, I'll I'll sort of start it. Okay. Um, I would probably want, I think people should be, be more curious. Yeah. Like think about sort of that whole process of how, not only how did that species or animal or sample get into the museum itself, like people had to go out and collect it, but also the, the preservation process and the process of now, you know, communicating that information to you as a as a consumer as a purveyor and enjoyer of museums i i think like being mindful of that whole process because it is 
mountains and mountains of work. Um, yeah, I think that would be sort of have a think about that next time, next time you go to the museum and see if that maybe changes your perspective on museums. Cause I think people think museums are boring. I think they do too, which is, is very tragic. Yeah. It's a bit of a shame cause they're really not. They're really not. <laughs> There's the, I think the biggest thing for me to take, to like think about when you're in a museum is the the wide breadth of knowledge that's there because mm. there is so much really in a museum and they only can show so much. So yeah. it's one of those like really try to appreciate how much they've tried to like show you. Cause a lot of times they're trying to show you so much in their collections. Mm. Um, so really kind of like take the time to appreciate how like large and not the knowledge and collections. Yeah. So thank you guys for listening. You're here with Sammy and Liz listening to Boiling Point, and we'll have a little spooky song to play us out. Thanks so much for listening. And suddenly, to my surprise, he did the monster match. It was a graveyard smash. It caught on in a flash. He did the monster match. From my laboratory in the castle east To the master bedroom where the vampires feast The ghouls all came from their humble abode To get a jolt from my electrode They did the match They did the monster match The monster match It was a graveyard smash They did the match It caught on in a flash They did the match They did the monster match Zombies were having fun The party had just begun The guests included Wolfman, Dracula and his son The scene was rocking, all were digging the sounds Igor on chains, backed by his baying hounds The coffin bangers were about to arrive With their vocal group, the Crypt Kicker Five they played the monster match. The monster match. It was a graveyard smash. They played the match. It got on in a flash. They played the match. They played the monster match. Out from his coffin 